notice that the psalm starts and ends with celebration. Right? The refrain of bless the Lord is, is, is repeated throughout verses 1 through 5, or well, 1 through 2, and then again 20 through 22. Celebration. I have, a, I have a very strange, weird, conflicted relationship with just even celebration on its own, right? Um, I was a senior in high school. I was not a Christian. When a friend of mine was telling me, like, oh, man, you got to come see this concert with me. It's so good. This band is amazing. You're going you're gonna to love them. And, um, and it's, it's actually at the, I grew up in St. Louis, so at the time this was the TWA Dome, the Transworld Airlines Dome, where the, the newly moved St. Louis Rams were playing. I was like... Yes, I'm in, and it's free. That's even better because uh, I'm a senior in high school. I don't have money, so I'm like, okay, let's go. Well, the concert was all of four or five songs, and then this old guy got up and started talking from a podium and a lectern, and I'm like, I'm so confused. I can, I'm just gonna go wander around the, the the stadium because there's nobody out there, and this is really cool. I want to go see where the Rams play. I've never been here before. Well, the old guy's name was Billy Graham. And I got, like, legit bait-and-switched. And, and I had no idea what that meant. I'd never heard the term before, but in hindsight, that's absolutely what happened. And, and, and I went back from my exploring and, and wandering the halls of, of, you know, St. Louis Rams Valhalla um, and, and sat down. And, and when I realized, like, oh, the, the music's actually not coming back for a long time, and, and actually, when it did came, come back, it was after this whole uh, altar call, which I didn't know was the term at the time either, and it was also only like two or three songs. And I'm like, this is, this is the shortest concert, but the longest time commitment ever. I actually didn't mind the preaching. I didn't really understand what he was saying or why he was saying it, and in hindsight, as a pastor now, I'm kind of like kicking myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was historic, and I was an idiot, Right? But I wasn't actually, I didn't feel, I don't know, uncomfortable by too many things uh, about that. It wasn't the preaching, it wasn't what was said, or even how it was said, said. It was actually the celebration around me that made me kind of uncomfortable. You know, the, you know this. And, and no offense, like no, no judgment if you do this. Well, there's judgment from me back then. But that was because I didn't have a cause for celebration. I didn't understand why you'd look like a fool with your hands up high like this because I didn't, I didn't know that kind of love. Okay, to be honest, I'm still a little uncomfortable with it. It's still a little weird to me, but it's because I didn't grow up in that culture. In fact, I would even still say that, that celebration, especially celebrating God, feels a little bit fake and inauthentic to me. Right? I was saying... And I was, when this entire psalm is about celebrating God, I'm like, okay, I actually have to interrogate that feeling a little bit during my sermon prep and ask, okay, why is that is? Why, why, why does that feel fake and inauthentic still? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, I don't even remember which, what sermon it was, if this was in, but I was talking about how celebration is a surprisingly vulnerable thing, right? Because you are, you are centering somebody else, you're making a big deal out of them, and you're doing it without any kind of qualification, right? You're not saying, you know, so-and-so and I, we really disagree, but I'm excited for him right now. That's not celebrating somebody. That's, that's qualifying something. That's, like, that's actually about you. That's making sure people don't perceive you as liking somebody for, who, who has something bad about them, right? 
It's vulnerable because it is an unqualified joy about the quality of the cause for celebration, right? It's also self-forgetful. You have to be self-forgetful if you're putting your hands up here, right? Okay, that was also kind of a joke. We're gonna, this is going to be a long morning. It's more self-forgetful than it is self-expression, right? Because self-expression, and yes, there is some of that. We are celebrating in a way that I, I'm sure to some degree is authentic for us when we are worshiping on Sunday morning, and yet... If it stops there and isn't self-forgetful, if we're still thinking about ourselves, are we actually celebrating God still? This is why the surprising reality of spiritual growth is that maturity looks like celebrating God more. Maturity looks like celebrating God more. Psalm 103, like verses 1 through 5 and 20 through 22 is the celebration itself. But it's not the kind of celebration we normally think about when we think about celebration, that especially through the lens of self-expression. It is also an imperative, right? It's saying, like, do bless the Lord, O my soul. You should bless the Lord, O hosts and ministers of his word, right? It's like, it's, it's a gentle command. It's an urgent persuasion, Kind of like if somebody brings up The Mandalorian as a TV show and they are ragging on it, I'm going to say, what is wrong with you? Mandalorian is amazing. Bless the Mandalorian, oh, you fool. I'm just being honest. Okay? Tell them it like it is, remember? It is, it is, it is an exhortation. It's not just an expression. Okay? Then 6 through 18, though, what those verses are sandwiching is an extended mulling over and, 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 and savoring of the cause for celebration, which is a forgiveness from God that is so radical and relentless that it does not function like the safety net we normally think of when we think of forgiveness, as in you need to be forgiven when you screw up. But otherwise, we relate to our, each other outside of that lens. No, it's actually instead the foundation upon which our relationship with God is possible at all and the landscape, the, the, the form and the beauty and the how of God relating to us in his word and deed. So I'm going to start actually with, with the middle of the psalm first in order to, to really get to the celebration part. We need to talk about the quality, like what it is we're celebrating. And the first is, is that there is this radical event of God's forgiveness in verses 6 through 13. One of the things Anna and I are trying to do with Ransom is that when he messes up or when he does something wrong or he's in trouble, we tell him and say very explicitly, I forgive you. Right? We want him to know that his sin uh, is what he's done or, or how he screwed up. That is not how we see him. That's not how we know him. It's real. It's something we need to be honest about, right? But it's not how we relate to him. Our, our forgiveness is. Recently, he had a tantrum of all tantrums. Uh, we had some people over, a couple of you were there, and the boy done lost it. Uh, that's the, the short version, the, the TLDR. And to the degree that I had to actually like pick him up because he was swinging at Hannah, and I was like, like he's never done this before. So we picked him up. I took him into his room, 
and we had to let him sit in there for a while, and, and we had a conversation afterwards, and I, I tried to do this again. Where I say, I forgive you. And he doesn't say anything about it. He just continues to say, I didn't like how you talked to me. And it didn't, it didn't have any effect on him because he just, he was convinced that I was the one that actually needed forgiving because I wronged him. Verse 8 in this beautiful, amazing psalm says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is actually a copy-paste from Exodus 34, verse 6, which comes right after Israel's radical I forgive you event after their first major screw-up as God's people, their tantrum of all tantrums. You see, right before this moment, when God says this, God has delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt specifically and explicitly in order to worship him. Like that was the justification given to Pharaoh by Moses and also by God and to his people. Like this was, this is the why, okay? And the first thing that they do once they get through all of that and, and you know, and, and cross the, the Red Sea and get to Mount Sinai, the first thing they do once Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law from Yahweh is they melt down the wealth that God provided to them in order to worship an idol of their own creation. What's fascinating is if you go back and read Exodus 32, you know why that was? It's because God wronged them. They were, Moses and God were taking too long. So, okay, let's worship an idol. They're throwing a tantrum. They were being impatient children. But God forgives them. He says, I love you. He kind of knows what he's getting into. And so Exodus 34, verse 6, and also verse 8 in Psalm 108, or Psalm 103 here, this is this, is this beautiful moment where God is with Moses. He comes back up Mount Sinai after everything is handled down below, comes back up Mount Sinai, and they're about to initiate God's covenant with his people in a way that had not been seen since Abraham. This amazing historic moment, and God gives a preamble. He says, you should know who you're entering into this covenant relationship with. You should know the party that I represent as me in this treaty, and this is who I am. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. He says he is this covenantal love and forgiveness because that is who he is before obligating himself to do so. In other words, he can't help it. He's not actually entering into a, a, a covenant or a relationship where he has to do anything different than he has already done. He's just formalizing it. Then what follows after verse 8 and 9 through 10 Right? This is to signal anyone who, uh, you know, Psalm 103 had an original audience. That original audience would have instantly gone back to that moment and had all of that meaning and all of that context imported into here so that when he says he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For a people who at the time, who this book is, book four of the Psalms is, is focused on, who are in exile in Babylon, that would have been really encouraging. 
It would have been really encouraging because they would have been reminded that while God, yes, he disciplines, it is as an ideal father whose ways and acts demonstrate infinite patience and inexhaustible mercy. In our tantrums, we may have to be carried off into our rooms. I mean, Babylon, right? But God's not angry forever. He loves, despite how difficult it may feel sometimes to, feel dis- to be disciplined by him too. The encouragement and the good news here is that the exile, we can expect the exile to end because if it didn't, God wouldn't be God. God wouldn't be God if he didn't deliver Israel as he did in Egypt. Then verses 11 through 13, it's beautiful. I want to read this again. I don't have a slide for it, but if you have your Bible, you can definitely read along with me. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. These are three visual aids that are filling out what it means for God to be merciful and gracious. It means that his mercy and his grace are abundant, verse 11. They are decisive, verse 12, and they are always enduring, verse 13. It kind of keeps flowing from there, right? And we start to see this picture in 14 through 18 of the relentless accumulation of God's forgiveness, right? In my desire to, like, be a good dad to Ransom and Deacon, one of the things that I hope happens and is the, like, I will know that I have been a halfway decent dad if after they are 18, they know and actually come to me when they have screwed up or are in trouble because they know that nothing will endanger my love for them. That I will have compassion on them as, as the Father has compassion on me. And that only happens. We only get to that point, not because of a singular radical event of forgiveness, but because through sheer repetition over time and in a variety of circumstances. In other words, what I'm saying there and what God is saying here is that through that repetition, His way, His accumulation, is backed up by a track record of acts or events. But man, both with God and with my boys, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Right? Ransom and Deacon, I mean, yes, they're five and a half and almost one, so they're finite and they're fickle, right? But they will always be finite and fickle. And no matter how, like even if I do the dad job perfectly, it's still not a guarantee because, well, verse 15 says it really well. As for man, our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field. We're like bottle rockets, right? We have the, you know, this momentary ooh and ah, and then it's like a really fast, cool thing, and then it's over almost as soon as it happened, right? We are finite. God is not surprised that our aspiration, which we talked about in Psalm 101, doesn't survive the reality of Psalm 102 undamaged. <laughs> That's actually part of his compassion, He knows we will fail. He knows that we will melt down his blessings into something that we can worship in his stead. And he forgives us then too. It gets better, (laughs) right? Part of 14 through 18 is that God's chesed, this is the, the Hebrew word that is translated as steadfast love and faithfulness because no one word can actually encompass what its meaning is. It's so big and it's so true and it's so reliable as an outflow of who God is that being faithful 
him being faithful to a single generation or even several can't possibly exhaust his faithfulness. So to be who he is, it necessitates. God can't help but be eternally chesed, be eternally faithful. That's what verse 17, when it says, from everlasting to everlasting, it's trying to articulate something that is too big for words, much like Ransom, who right now, when we say goodnight to him, he's, in, he's saying this thing that just makes my heart happy. Um, he says that, you know, he says, Daddy, I love you to Pluto and back 29 times. And I think the only reason he doesn't say 30 is because he doesn't know that that comes after 29. He's trying to use words and ideas and categories that, that, that stretch his imagination but are still encompassed by it in order to, to describe a love that's bigger than he has the words to actually describe. That's everlasting to everlasting. I think it's important for us, this, this is less in the text and more in the like, I think a barrier to this kind of like hitting us in the heart a little bit is that when we read Scripture we often read it as, well, that was Israel, right? That was God forgiving them then. But what about me now? Like, there's this weird kind of disassociation that we have where we, we look at this and it somehow doesn't, account, it doesn't count toward this relentless accumulation of God's forgiveness. But let me tell you, Christian, this is your history. This is your family. This is your genealogy. This is your accumulated forgiveness. You are one rock and a stream has been worn smooth by his love and his grace in ways you're not even aware of preceding you. We are inheritors of God's has said throughout all generations. He didn't just start the first time you were aware of screwing up, but millennia prior. That's how big and everlasting, and to everlasting, his forgiveness is. So let me, let me take these kind of two points here, and like, you might be asking, like, okay, how does that relate to maturity? Like we're talking a lot about God and his forgiveness. How, how do we connect that? What actually was the very beginning of the psalm? Let me reread verses 1 through 5 again. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is self-rousing prayer. Notice that the psalmist starts Psalm 103, that David is speaking to his own heart. This is self-talk and yet still prayer. Not, not in a way that is like seeing himself as God, but in a way that is saying like, toward, in a way that is about God, still speaking to himself, don't forget. Don't forget the, the radical event of God's forgiveness or the re relentless accumulation of God's forgiveness. And this is maturity because it, you are not, we are not going to rouse ourselves without an aspiration to begin with, as we talked about in Psalm 101, and we, are not, and we are not going to rouse ourselves with prayer in this way if we are not honest about reality, as we talked about in Psalm 102, but most importantly, we're not going to rouse ourselves to prayer, and it's not going to be worth it if God is not the Lord who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
If he is, it's time to wake up. And we can tell that, we can say that to our hearts. That's actually the mature part. You know, Jesus, when, 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 he, when he heals people in, in the Gospels, um, one of them is he heals a paralytic whose friends like tear a hole into the ceiling in order to lower him down. And what's interesting is that there are, there are one, two, and three, there's, I think it was just one three-stage healing in the Gospels, and this is a two-stage healing where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And that's one thing. But then he says, rise up, pick up your mat, and walk. And there's a response. And the response is to trust that the forgiveness enough is true as to have the transformation on himself. To trust that Jesus' declaration is more true than how he feels. You see that? That's the maturity. And I'll be honest with you. I've, I, I've kind of mentioned this before, but I'm kind of thick in, this, in a season right now where I, if I'm honest, I feel pretty bleh about God. That's maybe weird to hear a pastor say, but I, 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 I read Psalm 103 and I'm like, I don't feel that way, right? What if my Father in heaven's compassion that's described in verse 13 is actually more like my dad on earth's? which is fickle and insecure and needing my validation so much more, so much that he doesn't see how much I long for his reassurance. What if God's actually like that? What do I do when I can't see God past all the ways that I just don't feel like I'm enough to the people around me? I'm not saying these things to, for you to like have sympathy for me or anything. I'm, I'm trying to like, what I'm trying to describe and point out is how much the way we feel about God is not a reflection of God, the way God feels about us, but it's a reflection of all the crap in the world that clutters our sight and makes that hard to see. And when we trust the way we feel about God to be how He feels about us, we're actually missing an amazing opportunity to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within me. Bless His holy name, because it is not about how we feel, it's about how He is worthy. We need these reminders not because necessarily because we suck or because God isn't there. It's because we just live in this fallen world. And this is like, I want, it, I want you to hear how this is not just like, well, if you're struggling, then you need to do more and pick yourself up by your bootstrap. Because there is, even in this being an imperative, even in this kind of like self-talk prayer, there is some amazing news in here, right? Because it implies, like this is scripture, to for David to say in Psalm 103, bless the Lord on my soul, implies that he might not want to if he doesn't. That means that, that apathy and feeling bleh about God, gloom, fearing whatever, is actually a common enough experience to need rousing from. Is that not comforting? Never mind that many psalms actually trust God and, and speak about trusting God and trust in Him based on how God has treated us without any kind of exuberance. Like, it means that this is okay. It means that Psalm 1, when it says that we are to be planted, to be planted as a, a tree next to still waters so that we are bear fruit in its season, the in-season part is really important. It means that we may not always be bearing fruit. We may not always feel celebratory. That's okay. 
there's a lot of freedom here. Second, secondly, it, it's also encouraging because it, it builds on the honesty of Psalm 102. Right? If, you, if you need a reminder of what Psalm 102 said, it says, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. And I said that was, sounded a lot like you know, bitters sprinkled in a cocktail of suck. Okay? It was really good. I remember that one. Like, that honesty is followed by this reminder that feeling like Psalm 102 is changed by God and not us. That when we are feeling like we are in the pit, we can be reminded that it is He who redeems us from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And when you think about crowning, it's not just this like, well, here's the steadfast love and mercy. Have a good one. See you later. Like there's pomp and circumstance. There is celebration. God is celebrating you. And the means and form and flavor of that celebration is through steadfast love and mercy. And so preaching to our own soul is a mature response that's both honest about where we are, that actually implies and says, you know what, God, I don't feel like celebrating you right now, and I don't like being there. Will you please change it? That's Brad's illuminated version of, of, of verses 1 and 2. That's what David is saying. But it's, it's, this, it's this combination of being honest of where we are and truth-telling and where we hope and where hope is, actually. Lastly, the psalm, we can't forget that the psalm was sung, sung corporately, right? The psalms are, are like Israel's hymn book. And so this is what they used instead of planning center online, planning center services or whatever, to store the song lyrics that we use. Like, it was this. And that means that if you can't rouse yourself with the promises of God, then let other people, then let it be sung over you. Let it be, let, just take it in and hear it and be, like, take comfort and encouragement and assurance that what everyone is singing around you is true of you, even if you are not able to raise your voice as well. I was saying uh, that I'm kind of in the season of blah, and I woke up feeling that way this morning. I'm just like, well, this is terrible to be feeling this way at the beginning before I'm supposed to do a sermon about maturing through celebration. Really inconvenient, God. Um, and so what I did was I... I, I have you ever, how many of you heard of Charlie Dates? Is a preacher? Ever heard of him? Okay, y'all need to know who Charlie Dates is. Okay, go find his sermons. This is the only time you'll hear me, like, go listen to somebody else's sermons, okay? Charlie Dates is uh, the African-American lead pastor of uh, Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, and, man, the dude can preach the pain off the walls. And I was like, I, like, I just needed to hear this truth spoken and to hear someone say, you, this is true for you, and I celebrated. God's word does that. It doesn't return void. Okay, this is the last thing I will say before we jump into the Q&A. The end result of this, and to tie all of this together, is a really unlikely place in this psalm. It's, it's, it's summarized. And it is that we're, or we're able to see and appreciate the so that of verse 5 a lot more. Verse 5 says, who satisfies you with good. And this is, remember, this is, the, this is after a long list of, of, of benefits 
that we should bless the Lord for, who satisfies you with good, with, with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. How many of you know what that means? I don't know what that means either, but it sounds awesome, right? I would love to have, to, to, that my youth is renewed like the eagles. I have no idea what that means, but that sounds good. Well, actually, here's, here's what it means. It's a metaphor, right? Eagles, they see far and wide, right? They are calculating, they're observant, and they're wise. They're noble, or they're regarded as a noble animal in part because they know how and when to rouse themselves from stillness into action, right? So what's being described here is the renewal of hope and optimism that what's been worn down by reality over time is not going to just disappear, but it's also not going to return in the same form it was before reality struck it. Our aspiration is actually transformed and changed instead. And so it is a maturing that comes through the benefits of both the radical events and the relentless accumulation of God's forgiveness that are all about that gap between aspiration and reality. Because when we are feeling that gap the most, that's when it is hard to celebrate. And that's when we need to self-talk and, and self-rousing prayer to be able to say, bless the Lord on my soul. Forget not his benefits. You, your aspirations, God's aspirations of you, you're forgiven. Time and time and time again. And so our passion, our enthusiasm, our care, while yes, it is often diminished by reality, it is also tempered and deepened into something more stable and potent and less dependent on the world being your oyster like we would think as naive youth, right? It's the eagle of our youth. It's, the tra it's a transformed version of it. It's maturity. So that we can celebrate God. We can say, bless the Lord, O my soul, not because it's authentic or doesn't make us uncomfortable but because God is faithful and we should. All right. Let's see what questions we have. One so far. How do we live in the balance of being a fleeting, fading flower and yet the object of his radical love? How do we live in the balance of being a fleeting, fading flower and yet the object of his radical love? Man, I... I I feel like there's so many places you can go with that. I'll tell you where I, like, this is for me. Like, I, I said a second ago that, you know, what do I do when I can't see God past all the ways that I don't feel like I'm enough? It means that that's not surprising to God. <laughs> and that my finiteness, my not being enough, is, is not something I have to, like, ignore or shove down and act like it's not a thing so that I can appreciate God's love for me. It's actually the means by which God will demonstrate his love for me. It is in those bottle rocket moments. It is, it is knowing that God will make the most of that little mini explosion, not only to accomplish what he wants through me, but also to satisfy me with himself. Because God can do that. That he can, he, can, he can do that if he is who he is, if he is the God of mercy and grace who is steadfast love in his faithfulness. And that's so good. If anything, instead of those two things being contradictory to each other, in God's mercy and love, they feed one another more beautifully. 
So, only one question today. Now, here's how this relates to communion, right? I'm going to have a quote on the screen that I'm going to start reading as I walk down here. But this is, this quote sums up how and why communion is this kind of tangible, concrete sacrament that is in our participating in it is actually our saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and being renewed by that. This is from N.T. Wright. He says, bread and wine are taken up in the Eucharist into God's future purposes and become to us vehicles through which we can taste the fact that there is a new world, there is a new hope, there is a new way to live, and we are part of it. And our brokenness, our tired and tiredness, our finiteness and fickleness, our crassness about the things we haven't accomplished, and the long hours we have wasted doing our own thing instead of God's thing somehow fall away, and we become people of the new celebration, people of the new creation, people of God's new world, which is a world of fresh light, fresh forgiveness, new starts, new hopes. We must learn to celebrate the fact that, God, that Christ is risen and that, puzzled though we may still be about it, we are risen with him. What N.T. Wright is, is articulating in this quote is, is the beauty of God's love worked out in and through an undeserving people in a way that makes much about God and deepens and grows up at us in ways that we can't possibly fathom and is not in our control. Thank God, like, we would find a way to screw that up, right? And we did, right? It was with Peter that Jesus was with, when he, was, when he had the Last Supper with his friends, with Peter, Peter would be the one who denied knowing Jesus three times, and that's the guy that Jesus is like, hey, feed my sheep. That gives me hope. I don't know about you guys. And so when he was with his friends... And he, was, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It is broken for you. I know you're broken. I have to do this because you're broken. We wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't be having this meal if this wasn't your need. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out. And he said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. It is given one time in this radical event of mercy on the cross, and yet every time and as we drink and renew the covenant through communion, you are accumulating relentlessly God's love and forgiveness. And so as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim that the Lord is merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love and faithfulness.